Hi, this is Lily Anderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Brothers and sisters, another jam-packed week I mean, with the family proclamation topic. This is an amazing topic. It's nice to end the year with this, I think, and our study of modern revelation, the doctrine and covenants that has been given to us in this dispensation as another witness of Christ and a, a wonderful view into the restoration and the amazing role of the prophet of Joseph Smith and those who served with him in sacrifice at that time. It's been a wonderful, wonderful curriculum. Looking forward to next year too, of course, but I've really enjoyed this opportunity to delve a little more deeply into the Doctrine and Covenants with you. I also think that talking about the family proclamation here at the end of this curriculum is wonderful because these are the words of our prophet Gordon B. Hinckley, very, very modern revelation that many of us will remember hearing in that women's session in a speech that Gordon B. Hinckley gave to the women of the church in a speech called Stand Strong Against the Wiles of the World. And that was in October Conference 1995, as I said in the women's session. I remember listening to President Hinckley give us this family proclamation. And like so many of you, it seemed like just common sense. I mean, this was 1995. That's 25 years ago, more than 25 years ago now. And it seemed like, okay, that's nice, but nothing new. Sort of like, check, 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 also check. These things are are principles that we've been taught our whole lives as members of the church and most of the world agreed, or at least a large proportion of the world agreed. At that time, for instance, same-sex marriage was not legal in any country in the world. And there were people who were kind of scrambling even politically to make sure that people knew they were on the side of traditional marriage. Even what we would consider now, you know, to be pretty leftist politicians didn't want to be identified as in favor of something like gay marriage. And that's just one of the issues here that uh, the proclamation guides us on. But now, think about it. If this were released today or in a conference today, this would be considered a hate document and really intense hate speech. I mean, it is still considered that way by some people, but... They can't say that it was that way when it was first given in 1995. So it just shows you how rapidly things can decline in a society in terms of morality and understanding of God and his ways and willingness to support something as essential as the unit family that brings children to the world in God's prescribed way. So anyway, this is quite the topic to discuss. I will not be able to cover all the cool stuff in here, even though it's a really not a very long document. But I'm going to do what I can to hit some of the, the highlights and, and give it some current context. Let's quote from President Hinckley in that speech, with so much of sophistry that is passed off as truth, with so much of deception concerning standards and values, with so much of allurement and enticement to take on the slow stain of the world. We have felt to warn and forewarn. I mean, the language here is so prophetic, so beautiful. So much sophistry passed off as truth, so much deception. Let's just define sophistry for a moment. The dictionary defines sophistry as the use of fallacious arguments. So false arguments, right? Things that are not true. The use of, of fallacious arguments, especially with the intention of deceiving. We're in a world full of sophistry. So many things are said as if they're true, and they're not true. They're absolutely, completely counter or diametrically opposed to the truth. So it's it's fascinating what can come out of the mouths of people in our world, prominent people that are reported in our media, and nobody kind of stands up and says the emperor has no clothes, I mean, or hardly anybody, but our prophets do that. Our prophets do that. And in this case, they, they did it ahead of the game, very inspired to do this at a time where they weren't going to get just immediately blasted out of the water, but, but as a warning and a forewarning. And now this document stands just monolithically as this amazing statement about God's families and what God intends with the family unit. It's, it's an amazing thing. And then this other great, this great usage of language here, 
so much of allurement and an enticement to take on the slow stain of the world. Wow, brothers and sisters, we should just really, really remember that phrase. That there is always that current pushing us toward taking on the slow stain of the world in so many areas of life, pretty much every area of life now. And this is this is gradual. This is if it were sudden, you know, it'd be, if somebody were just shutting off the lights, we would notice. But when the light is dimmed so gradually, we don't even seem to recognize that. But the Lord wants us to recognize it. The Lord, through his prophets and through personal revelation, can help us recognize when the light is dimming on something. And we have revelation. We have revealed words of God through our prophets in scripture and in current prophetic pronouncements, conference talks that can help us see when we could be lured into taking on the slow stain of the world. And if we hold to these truths, that will not happen to us. We also need to, of course, convert our children to these ideas. And and I say convert, not just tell them about them, but help them be persuaded to believe in the efficacy of prophetic pronouncement, in the power that comes when we follow the prophet, when we try to live our lives in accordance with scripture and the commandments of the Lord, And then it becomes easy to recognize a lie. It becomes easy to recognize deception because it doesn't line up. It tries to pull a different way. This is, this is so important in our day. I mean, the world is falling apart. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. So another great speech on this topic that I just want to mention before we get into the proclamation is by Elder Dallin Oaks, now President Oaks in October 2017. speech was called The Plan and the Proclamation. There are many, many addresses that have been given on the Proclamation of Family. I didn't reread them all, and I didn't have time to, you know, look at all the wonderful things that have been said or explained about the Proclamation on Family. Nevertheless, this was a speech I did want to mention. He says this, he says, the Family Proclamation is the Lord's re-emphasis of the gospel truths we need to sustain us through current challenges to the family. Let me say that again. The family proclamation is the Lord's re-emphasis of the gospel truths we need to sustain us through current challenges to the family. That's why it was given to us, and it can act in that incredibly protective ways and, and sustaining way if we will hold to it. Elder Oaks said in that speech, speaking of Christ, in Christ's final teachings in mortality, he told his apostles, If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, the world hateth you. That's from John 15, verse 19. What, again, a clear pronouncement from the Lord himself, that if we are of the world, the world will accept us and love us. But if we choose to follow Christ and are not of the world, the world will hate us. Again, we're living in this day. Thomas Monson, as president of the church, was quoted by Elder Oaks as saying, we must be vigilant in a world which has moved so far from that which is spiritual. It is essential that we reject anything that does not conform to our standards, refusing in the process to surrender that which we desire most, eternal life in the kingdom of God. We can't have it both ways. We can either hold to our standards and refuse to surrender what we desire the most, eternal life, or we can lose eternal life, lose our our opportunity to have all that God wants to give us. It's not going to be both ways, in the world or out of the world. Again, Babylon the Great as opposed to Zion. We, We can't live in both worlds. We choose while we're in this life, and the family is one of those demarcation lines. I mean, it's a it's a pivotal issue, and Satan has come full force against the teachings of God concerning the family. And he is relentless. He's relentless. He's getting us anywhere he can. And who knows, you know, what's next. But, you know, it's amazing. I've (laughs) lived a while now. But I've seen such a rapid descent into madness in the last couple of decades. It, It surprised me how quickly we could lose common sense or the light of Christ at whatever level we have it. Even even lose our access to the Holy Ghost if we are deceived and we relinquish our standards to the world. 
President Nelson, when as prophet, has reminded us, in God's eternal plan, salvation is an individual matter, but exaltation is a family matter. So again, if we let go of the standards of the Lord and we start to conform more to Babylon, as opposed to seeking to build Zion, to cleave unto the principles of Zion that are in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we forfeit exaltation. We can't have both. Everyone will be saved other than the sons of perdition. We've talked about that, section 76 particularly. Nevertheless, to be exalted is a family matter. We cannot be exalted without a spouse. Remember Boyd K. Packer saying that the temples are the only place on earth where God can organize a family. And that's a, a beautiful reminder that, that this is part of his plan for the exaltation of his children. All who will, all who choose to come to him in this way can qualify for exaltation. Not if we take these things lightly, not if we succumb to the sophistry of the world, the delusional pronouncements completely motivated by Satan, but mouthed by people who have become his instruments. It's a sad situation that so many people have been so deceived and promote that deception. But this is the world, again, that we're living in today. Now, there are so many people who have retrospectively become really angry at the family proclamation. In fact, I saw this really ridiculous, but we have somebody who wrote the queer family, a proclamation to the world. And he kind of goes down and mimics, or I don't know if it was a group or a person, but they go and they mimic the phrasing of the true proclamation to accommodate an entirely different attitude towards gender and family and marriage. And it's pathetic. I mean, it's pathetic. You read that and think people have, again, exchanged their birthright for a mess of pottage willing to give up all the riches of eternity, all the light and truth that God offers for a politically correct vision of something so essential as the family. I also saw that somebody had put online a redacted copy of the family, a proclamation to the world. And he just shows a copy of the proclamation and, you know, has taken a black marker and blotted out almost all of it. I mean, it's really almost all taken out because he doesn't agree with it. And he did explain in his little story about this that he was raised in the church, as was his girlfriend. But when they started to cohabit, that, you know, the family wasn't very happy about it. And anyway, they believe that they can do whatever they want. So he took issue with this revelation, as so many have. Now, let's go to the document Again, this won't be comprehensive treatment, but let's talk about some of the big issues. And there will be other times where I'm able to talk about more of this or in, to a greater extent. It's a topic that I love. I actually had the great privilege when I was teaching at BYU of kind of landing on this class when it was pretty new. I had taught some other marriage and family classes in my doctoral program. But shortly after I finished my dissertation and completed the PhD, I was invited to be one of the teachers to teach this at uh, the class on the family proclamation at BYU, which was just a perfect fit for me. I mean, I enjoyed teaching whatever subject on family, but this was such a perfect fit for me. And to be honest, they didn't really have any regularized curriculum at that time. So we didn't all have to teach the same thing. We could just use the document as our stepping off place and, and address that in the class. And so I was able to incorporate a lot of my therapy models in there and talk about, you know, how these kids could prepare for good marriages, good families, you know, strong identities as sons and daughters of God. It was, it was really a delight. And I'm so grateful to have had that chance for many years to teach that class. Let's start with one of these statements from the proclamation. Marriage between a man and a woman is ordained of God, and the family is central to the Creator's plan for the eternal destiny of His children. Now, we just had some statements from prophets recently reiterating that in their own words, that the family is central to the Creator's plan for the eternal destiny of His children. It's all about exaltation. That is a family matter, and marriage is at the foundation of family. I was talking in Sunday school the other day about 
Section 131, and there is some content on that that will be available later, but the statement there that marriage pertains only to the highest level of the celestial kingdom is really important. That is exaltation. That is where people are able to have increase. And somebody asked, well, are you know, what if there is marriage in the other levels of the celestial kingdom, but they just don't have increase? And then it was kind of an obvious response when you think about it. I said, but what's the whole point of marriage to God? And the whole point of marriage to God is increase. That is why he ordained marriage, so that it could produce, well, spirit children in a pre-mortal situation, but also, of course, on this mortal life, we bring forth mortal spirits or spirits into mortality as, as husbands and wives married according to law and God's covenants, then we have this chance to develop the plan, to participate in this essential plan for the salvation and exaltation for those who desire it of his children. Now, look at, you know, how much hatred this inspires in some communities these days. That marriage is just between a man and a woman. Again, that would be called hate speech now. It is called hate speech. And that marriage and family are essential to God, you know, but in God's way as a man and a woman married together having children, not in the world's way. And this is pretty controversial. How did that even happen, right? So much of this sophistry is around gender, right? And so let's read that statement on gender. Gender is an essential characteristic of individual, premortal, mortal, and eternal identity and purpose. Again, when Gordon B. Hinckley said that in 1995, I was sitting there and I was like, yeah, yeah. I mean, when do we get to the news, you know? But now we can see how incredibly bold this document was. And it was meant to be as the world shifted under our feet. These things start to stand out as incredibly bold statements that so many disagree with. Gender is an essential characteristic of individual, premortal, mortal, and eternal identity and purpose. This is not what Satan wants. Now, why is Satan so angry about family and so destructive about family? And I think it's pretty obvious when you think about it. He missed the opportunity to receive a body. Satan will never have a physical body. He has a spirit body. He will never have a physical body. He and the third that were cast out of heaven after the great war about agency will never have a chance to have a, a physical body. We know that it's the spirit and the body together that is the soul of man. We know that that is where we can have a fullness of joy, is when that comes together again in the resurrection, without all the carnal, sensual, and, and devilish, that that makes us potentially able to receive, if we choose, that complete fullness of joy that God offers. And it requires a body for that, and certainly to have the joy that comes from perpetuating God's plans and being able to bring mortal spirits here and then spirit bodies forth in the eternities, that's something Satan will never have access to. He's envious of that. He wants to destroy it. We know that he wants all men to be miserable like unto himself. He wants to take away the joy that can come from the proper use of marriage, of men and women together following God's plan. And if he can destroy gender or confuse it, he'll do it. And he has had quite the toehold in our world. Well, it's not a toehold anymore. It's a flood. But it's amazing how quickly it went from toehold to flood. Now we have so much telling us, and it's politically incorrect to disagree, that there is little or no difference between the genders and that it doesn't really exist except in your personal determination. We have people who are putting no gender on their children's birth certificates. They're leaving it blank because they don't want to influence the child, regardless of physical genitalia. The child comes with a boy's body or a girl's body, it, with very rare exceptions of, of problems that exist there, and yet they won't put it on the birth certificate because they want the child to decide for themselves. So... I mean, how, how crazy have we gotten that we won't even do that? Or we've gone so far as that in a country like Sweden, there have been some parents, and this has been for a while now, who will raise their children in the opposite of their physical bodies 
so that they don't influence them in some way. So they'll raise girls as boys or boys as girls. But what we find from following that for a few years is that when the child gets a little older and gets to express their own opinion, in almost every case, they choose the gender of their physical bodies. So, you know, again, you're, you're trying to turn something so natural and, and twist it into something unnatural, and it, it doesn't even work. It doesn't even work in most cases. Now we know that there are people who become confused or identify as opposite genders, and this, again, has been one of Satan's great playgrounds where he has, has really twisted this so that people now believe this. You hear people state this with, like, a straight face that... Gender is just, you know, sort of a psychological construct and that uh, people get to choose. Like they're, they're flying in the face of some of the most basic biology that exists. And not just for humans, but for all, you know, mammalian creatures. There are males and females and they're born, you know, with the appropriate equipment so that there can be procreation and a perpetuation of their species. And yet, you know, they'll look you right in the face. And a lot of these are college kids that have been convinced on university campuses. But it's not just there, it's online everywhere. And they don't have to wait till they're in university. Now we know that some of the sex education curriculums in our schools are presenting this really early. You know, we've seen these books enter the children's literature arena that are very confusing about that and don't want to you know, endorse the idea that somebody's actually a boy or a girl or that you have to have a man or a woman to have a family or children or whatever. And yes, our society has allowed for different forms of that now, but it's not God's form. And it can never work the way God's form will work. Another few thoughts about some of this confusion and how it really does try to fly in the face of nature and the way God has ordained us to be. Interestingly, again, the philosophy here, the false philosophy, the sophistry, is that gender doesn't really exist on a biological level, but that it's just, you know, how people feel or identify themselves. And that society has in the past constricted children to, you know, reduce their options and just seeing them as, you know, men and women is restrictive. So they're saying, you know, we have to be more open about that and not try to typecast these kids. Or, or stereotype them or, you know, deny them the options of, of functioning anywhere on that spectrum, all the way from, you know, going from a boy to a girl or a girl to a boy, and that it's all just a societally imposed construct. Well, it doesn't hold up. It doesn't hold up. There are hundreds of studies that have now been conducted in Scandinavia. So, okay, they have all these ways to rate, you know, societal stereotypes, cultural stereotypes. So psychologists have gone through and, and anthropologists as well and have looked at different societies and tried to, well, they have identified kind of on a scale of how open or how limited they are in terms of gender identification. And the Scandinavian nations are always the most open. There's, these philosophies have been very, very extensive in those countries. And as I said, some children are even being raised as the opposite gender or as no gender because the parents don't want to impose any of the stereotypes that they think will limit their children. So these countries always come out as the most open to whatever the kid thinks about gender. And what they have found Again and again, this is very robust research. It's, it's been repeated again and again. The measures are good. And they were completely contrary to what the psychologists wanted to find. So again, that gives them another level of credibility because so often people go into research and they certainly have an intention or, you know, they're looking to prove something or at least find some evidence for it. And so this was completely opposite of what the psychologists were looking for. But what they found was that in these countries that had the least stereotypical views of their children in terms of gender and the most open society, as children grow into adults and choose fields of study and professions, the differences between the choices that men and women make professionally maximize. That needs to make sense. Let me say it again. The less the society tries to prescribe to the child maleness and femaleness, 
the differences between men and women are more apparent as those kids grow up and choose their fields. The boys are more likely to choose from the STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, math, and the women are more likely to choose more stereotypically female roles like caregiving or, you know, some kind of nursing or counseling or taking care of children, early childhood education, you know, teaching those kinds of more traditionally female roles. These differences become stronger when you leave kids alone. That's what they're saying. And the psychologists didn't want to find that. They were already oriented toward thinking that, like, we need to encourage all societies to never, you know, emphasize that men and women are different or that boys and girls are different. Like, they need to think that they're exactly the same. You know, it's so obvious when you think about it. But this is not what we're hearing. We're hearing that you know, girls do girl things just because they're handed girl toys or they're encouraged to do girl things and that boys do boy things because they're encouraged not to play with girl things or not to cry or whatever. And that is the opposite of what they found in Scandinavia. It's the exact opposite. And again, this is really robust research. It has been done again and again. It's not what they wanted to find. It kept coming up in the findings very clearly. It was undeniable. Now, that doesn't mean you can't influence children, and we have a responsibility to influence them for good, but we need not to to fool ourselves or let society fool our children or fool us into thinking that these differences aren't important or significant or demonstrable. Now, this doesn't mean that women can't do anything in the STEM fields or that men can't do anything that's more in the relationship or caregiving areas. Of course they can. And people do get to choose. That's a good thing. But there's no denying the difference. There's no denying that while there is a huge overlap in the qualities of men and women, and in many respects, we're more the same than different when it comes to capacity and intelligence and and what we're capable of doing, which is a good thing, right? Because we can back each other up really well. And when one is not available, the other one can you know, do whatever needs to be done. So that's all good. But there are significant differences. And those manifest even more strongly when kids are left into themselves to choose how to manifest. Now, it's interesting, these studies, you know, go at all ages, and they've done lots of things that are not accepted, even though they are in the research, but they're not accepted by people with these agendas to try to eliminate the differences between men and women. I'm just going to give a couple of examples. Trond Dieseth, who is a Norwegian child psychiatrist, psychiatrist at the University of Oslo, has done studies with very young children and given them the choice between traditionally male or traditionally female toys. And consistently, girls choose the traditionally girl toys and the boys choose traditionally boy toys. In fact, he has used this on the rare occasion that there's an intersex child that has that's you know a hermaphrodite that either has you know some genitalia that's male but some that's female or it's not clear and if if people have brought those children to him he tests them in this way and the ones that go to the more traditionally boy toys uh, he says that's a clear indication that that they are boys or if they go toward the girl toys and other studies have been done that show that it's not just the toys they play with, but how they use the toys. And maybe you've noticed this as a parent. I remember noticing this because, you know, we had four boys and four girls. So there were lots of girl toys and lots of boy toys in the house. But when the boys picked up, like, say, a doll, it's like they turned it into a gun or a battering ram or whatever. And they weren't being destructive. They were just they were just oriented toward using it in a different way when the boys were from the girls. And when the girls were playing with things that were more traditionally masculine, they kind of used them in more feminine ways. You know, so the differences are God given. Gender really is an eternal characteristic. And that is really contrary to what we're hearing from what you might say are more progressive members in the church that, you know, are are saying that, you know, maybe people were gay in the pre-earth life and they'll be gay in in the hereafter. And I've heard that expressed from, from some people in the church. That's not true. People were created. I mean, we were male and female created by God in that way. And that's how we will remain as male and female. There will not be people who were gay in the, in the afterlife. Now, that doesn't mean that 
we hate or discriminate or try to injure or damage people? Of course not. I'll talk a little bit more about that later, but I want to mention another series of studies done by a researcher named Simon Baron Cohen, who's a professor in developmental psychopathology in the University of Cambridge and a fellow at the Trinity College there at Cambridge. He even would go so far as to go to newborns to do his testing. He would hold up different kinds of pictures to the newborn and then record how long they were focused on the picture. And he found that when he held up pictures of mechanical things, that boys held their focus much longer than girls on those pictures. And when he held up the pictures of faces, the girls definitely looked at those and were focused on those more for more time than the boys. I mean, again, there's going to be a range and so on. This isn't like a number of seconds or a number of minutes, but but these things were measurable. They They continue to be measurable. So you know, we're hearing so much that is contrary to the truth. I want to say something else. If you haven't listened to Jordan Peterson, I would really encourage you to look on YouTube to see some of his videos, his interviews and so on, or lectures. And you could specifically look up one about like why men and women are different or a subject like that with the name Jordan Peterson. He's a Canadian psychologist. He used to teach at the University of Toronto now is spending most of his time creating more content and writing, but he has some really, really clear research and clear thinking about this. He's not a member of the church, and he doesn't come from a big political perspective or from a religious perspective, but he just uses data and good content, good studies and reason to discuss things that are just really I think, well put. So I would encourage you to look that up. There's some good material there. And I would share this again with our children. They are being bombarded by different perspectives. And too often, they are really influenced by that. The internet is is really aggressive in, in communicating ideas that are completely contrary to the family proclamation. And sometimes they're hearing it at school or from their friends or so on and in the media. And it's really important that we make sure that we give our children a chance to be converted to the truth. Not just that God exists, not just that Jesus Christ is their Savior, which is all wonderful stuff, but a correct understanding of their plan. And it's so often said, and correctly so, that the proclamation on family is really about the plan of salvation and has a tremendous amount of powerful doctrine in a relatively short statement here that really pertains to how God works with his children to provide them the opportunity for salvation and exaltation. I just want to mention another issue, and that is that, you know, this idea that men and women can't collaborate well together, but that are kind of in an adversarial situation where men have oppressed women and women have been oppressed or been victimized by men. That's a really evil doctrine as well. And in the proclamation, it's clear that God is inviting us to work together, that that we are meant to come together to create families and to have this divine division of labor. We'll read that statement in a moment. And, and that it's not an adversarial relationship, but look how successful Satan has been in promoting militant feminism and a whole idea that men are oppressors. We, we talk about that a lot in, in the media these days and online. It's really a dangerous idea. In fact, this is another Jordan Peterson insight that I really like. He says that to buy into the idea that men have always been oppressors and women have always been oppressed is to deny the success of the human race over the entire history of mankind. He said, particularly before more modern times where survival was an immediate and pressing issue every day. I mean, think about it. We have all these conveniences and so much safety and so much access, supply chain problems notwithstanding. We have we have a lot of access to goods and services in a way that has never been the case prior to this more modern age, post-industrialization. And previous to that, it really was about having food and having shelter and trying to keep your kids alive and surviving all kinds of extreme situations and conditions that could threaten survival of, of humankind. And the fact that, that this race has survived so consistently and and successfully is a tribute to the collaboration between men and women. We need each other. 
And that has been a successful collaboration. It doesn't mean there haven't been abuses and so on, but to think of it as constantly that like for generations, women have been oppressed and men have been oppressors. That's not, that's not reality. And it really does fly in the face of the survival of, of humankind on the planet. But who would be really happy to see that happen? You know, it's, it's Satan again, who comes in and tries to turn us against each other. Because if he can, if we can see each other as the enemy, if we can bash each other or think just in harsh terms toward all men or all women in disparaging or critical ways, then, you know, we're left without that capacity to collaborate, to come together, to maximize our strengths together, to synergize those strengths and flourish as, as a family which will be the essential component, the base foundation of Zion is, is that family unit where men and women come together. I'm going to bounce back a little bit. Sorry for the disorganization, but I'm going to go back to talk a little bit more about how successful Satan has been in his campaign to eliminate gender or confuse it, at least to a huge extent. Maybe you heard that just in late November of this year, the IOC, International Olympic Committee, announced new guidelines for the women's sports, and they basically eliminated any requirement to reduce testosterone levels for transgender women, meaning men who identify as women now, to compete as women. So prior to this, those men who were identifying as women needed to keep their testosterone levels with hormone suppressors and blockers and so on, testosterone blockers, to below a certain level in order to qualify to compete against women. But now that has been eliminated. If a guy thinks he's a woman, he doesn't have to reduce testosterone at, in any way in order to, to compete as if he were a woman. Even really militant feminists are up in arms about this one because as much as I don't agree with militant feminists on so much, this one I agree with because they're saying this is going to be the eradication of female athletics. And you can see that eventually that's exactly what's going to happen. I mean, is anybody going to have some common sense here? I mean, it's really absurd. It is incredibly absurd. In fact, one of the kind of stories cited about how crazy this is, is that to this point, the fastest female sprinter in the world is an American runner named Allison Felix. She has more gold medals than Usain Bolt. And maybe you remember that name. He's a runner that has a ton of gold medals from the Olympics, but she has more gold medals than he does in the female sprints. Her lifetime best for the 400 meter is 49.26 seconds. Now, based on 2018 data, nearly 300 high school boys in the U.S. alone could beat that time. I mean, let's think about it. This is the fastest woman on the world in terms of recording a 400 meter time and based on the data from the you know the high school association in 2018 there were 300 high school boys in the US who were faster than that but we're saying doesn't matter it doesn't matter if a man decides he's a woman and he can compete against women so that we don't hurt his identity or his feelings or whatever this is, this is crazy stuff. And, and when you think that Satan has pulled this off and that so many people have swallowed it hook, line, and sinker, it's pretty astonishing how susceptible we are if we don't hold to the light, if we don't have the light and then hold to it. Another example that's sometimes cited is that a team in Dallas, Texas, of under 15, these were under 15 years of old boys at the FC Dallas Academy, had a scrimmage against the national U.S. women's soccer team. Now, it was a friendly scrimmage, they're saying, and maybe they weren't going all out because it wasn't, you know, exactly for an Olympic medal or whatever. But nevertheless, they were trying to, you know, use this as an opportunity to improve skills and team playing or whatever. The under-15 boys beat the national women's soccer team 5-2. to two. So, I mean, whatever you want to frame that. You know, I don't think those women were taking it easy on the boys necessarily, but whatever you want to think, there are just evidence after evidence that that this is crazy making. And we're not even talking about the danger of letting a boy who is messed up identify as a girl and enter into private spaces of women, like locker rooms or bathrooms. We're not even talking about protecting our young 
from potential assault by somebody who can just wave this flag and say, today I feel like a girl. Like, this is dangerous stuff. We're just talking about the field of athletics, which, okay, that's significant for some women too, but we're not even talking about the safety of our children, of our daughters, and the responsibility we have to make sure that they are protected. And yet now we're acting like it doesn't matter at all. By the way, if it comes to that in your schools where your daughters are not protected in those private spaces that should be female only and true female only, then you need to create a plan. I mean, if you can change the policy and protest as a group of parents, nevertheless, if for some reason you find yourself in that situation, your daughters need to be prepared. They need to have a friend go with them all the time. And actually, a group of friends would be better. And they're just going to have to time it so that they use the restroom together or they're in the locker room together as a group, not alone, so that they are prepared to protect themselves. We're going to have to use strategies of whatever kind to make sure that our children are protected. The world may abandon the protection of our young, but we must never do so. Another interesting book that has been written recently by Abigail Schreier is called Irreversible Damage. And she uses a term in this book, she's talking about a syndrome that she's seen that she calls rapid onset gender dysphoria. Rapid onset gender dysphoria. And she is talking about what she describes as a sudden severe spike in transgender identification among teen girls. So this is a, a kind of a fad, it seems like, and that's how she's approached it and said that, like, this is weird that all of a sudden we have a lot of teenage girls who are thinking of themselves as transgender when they're in high school, typically. And she, she attributes this to kind of what she calls social contagion. I think that's a really good word, social contagion among high anxiety, depressive, mostly white girls who in the previous decades would have fallen prey to anorexia and bulimia. In other words, there have been other kind of like dysfunctional fads that have come into teen girls' lives when they have levels of high anxiety or they, are, they struggle to, to not be depressed. And social media has ramped this up dramatically, of course. We know that girls are more affected than boys by the whole relational aggression that can happen, the, the backbiting and so on that, that sometimes girls do, or just the comparisons that they make with themselves and they worry about how many likes and shares they get, all that kind of stuff has ramped this up. And in a previous age, a lot of these girls would have succumbed to things like anorexia or bulimia and had to struggle to get healthy again. And now it's gone another step. What we're seeing is the trend is now to be transgender or to think that you're transgender. And then they end up going to doctors or whatever who are very quick in many cases to start with hormone replacement. They change the hormones that they're giving as a supplement or whatever so that they can block estrogen and add testosterone or whatever. And even many of these girls end up going on and having more dramatic medical procedures like sex reassignment surgery which is incredibly damaging. And even if it can be reversed, because down the road, many of these girls grow up and say, no, this hasn't made me any happier. This hasn't solved any problems. I'm still very confused or unhappy about my life. So they, they start to realize this wasn't the problem. And they try to reverse all of these sex changes that they've gone through, the hormone changes, as well as any surgery. They might have removed their breasts. They might have even removed their uterus. But what they find is that after they try to reverse this process and go back to being women that they have always been, they are often infertile. I don't know the numbers on that, but this is something I heard Abigail Schreier talk about in an interview. And what does that do? That, that again, changes the potential for establishing a family life with children. I'm glad that there are fertility treatments. I'm glad there's adoption and so on. But this this is life-changing stuff that our society is so quick to rubber stamp and say, oh, yes, you're confused. Well, you must be a boy or you must be a girl. And then taking sometimes really irreversible steps. And again, that is the title of the book, Irreversible Damage. So here we take these vulnerable, confused girls and do things that can't be easily reversed and may cost them years of, of really dramatic and traumatic so-called medical treatment that doesn't address the problem at all in the long run and creates new problems. Let me just read a few more statements from this inspired proclamation. We further declare 
that God has commanded that the sacred powers of procreation are to be employed only between man and woman lawfully wedded as husband and wife. You know the rates of cohabitation and, of course, you know, outside of marriage, sex have really skyrocketed in the last decades. Proclamation goes on to say that children are entitled to birth within the bonds of matrimony and to be reared by a father and a mother who honor marital vows with complete fidelity. Powerful words. It's not enough to have a father and a mother who are married. They also need to honor their marital vows. That is what God wants for children, for the spirit children that he sends into our homes and our families that honor marital vows with complete fidelity. Now, just being married is a real gift to kids, but they deserve to come into a family and a marriage where the parents are honoring their vows with complete fidelity. And that's not just sexual fidelity. It's also fidelity to those vows, to treat each other with respect. Let's just talk quickly about the rates of unwed births. They're talking about it as non-marital births. Now, I think that's the phrase that you look up. In 1960, 5% of the births in this country, the United States, were non-marital births outside of wedlock. In 1995, that's 35 years later, it, we had gone from 5 to 32%. From 5 to 32% in 35 years. Now, in 2020, the last year the statistics are available, we're over 40%. 40% of our children are not born in Side the bonds of matrimony. And yet they are entitled to this. God is saying that children are entitled to this. There is so much written about the impact on children of not having a mother and a father in the home. It is the best predictor of all adolescent problems. And they can go on past adolescence, of course, but we're talking about delinquency or problems at school or dropping out of school or drug use, alcohol use sexual promiscuity, all kinds of, of really antisocial behavior that costs those kids dramatically in their, in their journey of life if they're trying to get to a, a responsible and happy adulthood. The best predictor of all those problems is being raised in a home without a father. And we're talking about biological or adopted fathers. The statistics are different for stepfathers. I recognize that sometimes second marriages need to happen or beyond second marriages, nevertheless, we lose the benefit of a child being raised within the bonds of matrimony with their mother and father. It's not a reason to stay in an abusive marriage. Let me make that clear. If there are safety issues in the marriage, there may need to be a divorce. Nevertheless, it should not be seen as so disposable to jerk our kids out of, out of that relationship. And please consult, please consult with First, the Lord, and then priesthood leaders, church leaders, faithful counselors that can help with that process of coming to those decisions. God doesn't want us to be victimized. He also wants us to try to be very careful in our selection when we marry and to honor our covenants, honor our vows to each other with fidelity and a willingness to create a safe environment for our children. And if we're not doing that, we can make changes. We can strengthen our marriages. Going on, happiness in family life, this is kind of obvious when you think about it, is most likely to be achieved when founded upon the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Successful marriages and families are established and maintained on principles of faith, prayer, repentance, forgiveness, respect, love, compassion, work, and wholesome recreational activities. That's a long, wonderful list, and we should consider it. Are we including those things? Are we establishing Zion in our homes by honoring those principles and incorporating them into our daily lives and to our family dynamics. By divine design, fathers are to preside over their families in love and righteousness and are responsible to provide the necessities of life and protection for their families. Again, very controversial stuff now. This is all hate speech. Because even saying that a mother or a woman is the only one who can give birth is now kind of outlawed in some circles. Now they're talking about, you know, persons with uteruses 
or or whatever that you know on Mother's Day they were trying to change it to something like that. It's it's pretty bizarre stuff. But now they're saying that it's it's hate speech to say that only a woman can give birth because there might be somebody who was born female who now identifies as a man and wants to go through the process of pregnancy and birth. And we're supposed to believe that a man is giving birth. I mean, you know, boy, is the world upside down or what? Mothers are primarily responsible for the nurture of their children. What is so hateful about that? And again, I know that motherhood is really hard and the world has pulled away the rewards and even has put a lot of negative energy into telling mothers that they're not doing enough if they're full-time mothers, that their brains are turning to mush. That is not true. God does not just condemn his daughters to losing their, their chance to flourish because he wants them home with the kids. That's absurd. Obviously, if this is something that God is encouraging, where it's possible, and we realize that there are times when it's not, but where it's possible, God is encouraging it because it's best not just for the children and not just for the husband, but for the wife, for the mother, that this is an exalting opportunity. Everything he gives us, everything he ordains for us is an exalting opportunity. It's a chance to become that best version of ourselves. And if we're not feeling that, we need to revisit. We need to pray. We need to consult with good sources to see how we can make motherhood meaningful and we can be happy in, in this wonderful divine division of labor. Now, of course, and this goes on in the proclamation in these sacred responsibilities, fathers and mothers are obligated to help one another as equal partners. I would never have had eight children if my husband hadn't been willing to come home and change diapers, cook, you know, run to the store, help with homework, give baths, whatever. I mean, I needed that help. I needed that support. And that made my motherhood much more joyful and, and happy because I had great support. And I hope that I offered that same support to my husband in his career. It wasn't easy for me if he had to be out of town or work late or whatever. But I was grateful for the sacrifice that he was making to support our family and provide all the income. So I was extremely grateful that we had these, these different roles and were willing to fulfill them, but also that we supported each other in, in those obligations. And we had equal partnership. I'm not saying we were perfect at it. I'm saying that we felt the equal value that those roles can bring. And we had equal power in the relationship. I'll talk more about that on another occasion when I get a chance, because equal power is such a big part of equal power partnership. And if we're not experiencing that or feeling that, we need to, again, kind of like revisit the situation. Disability, death, or other circumstances may necessitate individual adaptation. Of course. Of course that's true. God is not rigid and he's not oblivious to the fact that the ideal isn't always possible. So whether it's disability, death, divorce, or other circumstances... It's all right for us to look at individual adaptation and see what needs to happen right now in our situation. We can be prayerful and thoughtful about that, and the Lord will support us because kids still need support. Families still need support. And then extended families should lend support when needed, and I hope that they do. How did we get so far from these incredible truths that are so self-evident if you really have you know, any clarity at all in your vision? But I'm reminded about a, a poem, I think I've mentioned it before, Alexander Pope, an English poet, centuries ago, said this really, really insightful thing. He made this point in a poem, and he said, Vice is a creature of such frightful mien, M-I-E-N, referring to the face. So vice has an ugly face, is what he's saying. Vice is a creature of such frightful mien that to be hated needs but to be seen. Evil is so ugly that all you need to do is look at it to see the horror of it, the depravity of it, the, the destructive nature of it. All you have to do is look and you can see how, how terrible it is. Then he goes on, but seen too oft, familiar with her face, we first endure, then pity, then embrace. This is exactly what has happened. And it has happened for centuries that things that are evil can become familiar and we first endure it, kind of suck it up and don't, don't try to push back. And then, and then we kind of pity it and say, well, it's not that bad. And our opinions start to change. Well, it's not that bad. We're, we're surviving. We're, you know, we're tolerating and then embrace. That's the progression. We can see it all around us. We 
really need not to go there ourselves. Brothers and sisters, it is contrary to Zion. We can't build Zion if we accept Babylon's definition of the family, of men, of women, of gender. And we want our children to be well-grounded in these principles. Again, you know, the prophets are amazing. Like, think about what a blessing it is to have prophets that can warn and forewarn about these calamities that can come philosophically, that, that can destroy civilizations. Elder Oaks, in that speech, The Plan and the Proclamation, back in October 2017, Ezra Taft Benson taught that every generation has its tests and its chance to stand and prove itself. Then Elder Oaks goes on, I believe our attitude toward and use of the family proclamation is one of those tests for this generation. Wow, that's the truth, isn't it? And I pray for all Latter-day Saints to stand firm in that test. As I was looking up some things on the family proclamation, I found a blog, and I don't even have a title for it. I mean, I have a title for the post, but I don't know what blog it is. Sorry, I could not find that information for some reason. But the title, and obviously written by a faithful Latter-day Saint, the title is From Stupidly Obvious to Controversial and Divisive. And the subtitle is The Family Proclamation 25 Years Later. And that's kind of what happened, isn't it? It seemed so self-evident that many of us listening to that family proclamation given by Gordon B. Hinckley thought, well, this is so obvious. It's, it's nothing bold or exciting or whatever. And now it's incredibly controversial and divisive. I'm quoting from that blog post, which I, I thought was a pretty good one. Satan's plan teaches that the ultimate principle of the gospel is not faith, nor is it love, not even obedience, but rather tolerance. Now, we understand that we do need to tolerate a lot of differences in the world, and we're not supposed to become adversarial or combative or whatever. And our prophets talk about this occasionally in a world that is so divided, where there seems to be so much intolerance. So I'm not saying that tolerance as a virtue is not a good thing in many ways, but it has been elevated above faith, true love, and obedience. And that's wrong. Because the first principles of the gospel are faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and repentance, etc. And as has often been taught by our prophets, the first law of heaven is obedience. And yet now tolerance has been elevated as if it is more important and outweighs all those other important imperatives. Knowing that gay marriage, this is the blog post again, knowing that gay marriage will not and cannot lead unto exaltation, which is eternal fatherhood and motherhood, teaches and substitutes true family relationships with his counterfeits. We've talked before about how Satan is the master counterfeiter. Going on, skipping a little bit, to want the church to accept and endorse gay marriage would be asking the church to forsake the plan of salvation and tell people to settle for less than exaltation. That is not real love. As our beloved prophet, speaking of Russell Nelson, has taught, Real love for the sinner may compel courageous confrontation, not acquiescence. Real love does not support self-destructing behavior. Now, again, let's put this in context. That doesn't mean we're supposed to go out there and confront everybody and everything that differs from us or believes differently from the way we believe but if we have a close relationship with somebody or we have a stewardship, and we all have a stewardship when it comes to the workings of our communities and our schools for our children and our governments. So there is a stewardship in many of those, those situations just as, as our roles are being fulfilled. And certainly this would involve the teaching of our children and the confronting of behavior in our children as appropriate. And again, you know, section 121 talked about when inspired by the Holy Ghost or when moved upon by the Holy Ghost. And that's important in our personal family relationships that we be inspired about that and not aggressive and not use this as an excuse to be nasty or mean to anybody. But again, let me just read this. This is the quote from President Nelson. Real love for the sinner may compel courageous confrontation, not acquiescence. We should not agree with lies. We should not soft pedal the lies that our loved ones are hearing and perhaps starting to be seduced by. And then the prophet went on, real love does not support self-destructing behavior. That is so accurate. 
boy, I say the version of that a lot as a counselor, that that's not real love to subsidize sin. It's not love to enable people in self-destruction. God won't do it. And if we're going to be like him, we have to stop doing it too. The blog post goes on. Therefore, the church will stand for the family proclamation. It will stand and teach everyone to strive for exaltation. And there will not be a revelation on gay marriage. Dallin Oaks taught this clearly in October of 2019 conference, which was a speech called Two Great Commandments. Eternal life, this is from Dallin Oaks now, eternal life includes the creative powers inherent in the combination of male and female, what modern revelation describes as the, quote, continuation of the seeds forever and ever. That is the destiny we desire for all we love. Because of that love, we cannot let our love supersede the commandments in the plan and work of God, which we know will bring those we love their greatest happiness. So beautifully put, again, thank God for our prophets. The proclamation ends with these sobering words. We warn that individuals who violate covenants of chastity, who abuse spouse or offspring, or who fail to fulfill family responsibilities will one day stand accountable before God. Further, we warn that the disintegration of the family will bring upon individuals, communities, and nations the calamities foretold by ancient and modern prophets. That is sobering, and I believe it. I hope you believe it too. I think we are seeing some of those calamities coming. My husband was talking with our neighbor who works in the oil companies, and he said that there is a continuous drought that we're not even talking about very much, but like the snowpack in North America is only 10% of normal. I actually looked that up, and I'm just going to say I could not find it. I don't know if I was looking in the right place or whatever, but I did see a lot of things that talked about some of the prolonged drought areas, and it did talk about the decrease in the snowpack. And anyway, my husband was just struck by that because he knew I was working on this, and he came in and he said, you know, Warning in the in the proclamation is is real, and we don't know exactly how that's going to manifest, but it's it could be manifesting in lots of ways. We just look around and see things that aren't working as well as they used to, and things that are changing out of their natural course, and realize that there are there are problems that are coming, and these are prophesied. If we, as a society, if if we don't heed the warnings of the prophets, if we throw these these precious principles under the bus if we trample them under our feet and ignore them and do so much damage to ourselves and to our children and to society. Now, this is a more upbeat statement that I want to end with, and it was also in Dallin Oaks' speech. I close with President Gordon B. Hinckley's teachings uttered two years after the family proclamation was announced. He said, I see a wonderful future in a very uncertain world. If we will cling to our values, if we will build on our inheritance, if we will walk in obedience before the Lord, if we will simply live the gospel, we will be blessed in a magnificent and wonderful way. We will be looked upon as a peculiar people who have found the key to a peculiar happiness. I love that. I love that. I'm going to read it again. I like it so much. I see a wonderful future in a very uncertain world. If we will cling to our values, if we will build on our inheritance, if we will walk in obedience before the Lord, if we will simply live the gospel, we will be blessed in a magnificent and wonderful way. We will be looked upon as a peculiar people who have found the key to a peculiar happiness. Today, I'm really celebrating prophets. I mean, I hope I celebrate every day. But today, to see the great clarity that comes from the prophetic voice that is given to our prophets, seers, and revelators by our Lord Jesus Christ, to bless us, to warn and forewarn, to strengthen us at times when the world has gone mad, where Satan is raging in the hearts of men, and is so very present we can be a peculiar people who have found a key to a very peculiar happiness. And sometimes when I'm talking to people about marriage or other family issues, I'll say like, well, you know, look out there. Like, why would we not do it the Lord's way? Take a look around. Has the world figured out any way to be happier? You know, they're not, they're not happy in this. This is not something that produces happiness because that's contrary to the truth. It's contrary to universal law. We are so blessed to know what God thinks. 
Now it's on us. We can either build on this inheritance or walk away from it or trample it under our feet. We can either walk in obedience or reject and rebel against the truth. We can live the gospel to be blessed even in the midst of the craziness of the world. I believe it. I cling to it. And of course we know that the world's not going to get better before Zion is established. It's in the midst of the trouble, of the craziness, that Zion will be established. We can be establishing that right now in our own minds and hearts, in our own families, in our own communities, with all those who are willing to participate. Our choice is to be a part of that endeavor which God offers to us in our day, in our lives. May we build Zion, brothers and sisters. Thanks so much to my husband, Chris, who was super helpful again this week. And thanks to Doug Larson of Point Digital, who does a great job. Take care.